Today, we are honored to chat with Larry Gigerich, Executive Managing Director of Genovis, now the President of Chamura, Leslie Peterson. Larry Gigerich is a truly American success story. Larry's grandfather, Louis Vassil, and his two brothers immigrated to the United States when communism overtook Albania. His parents sent the three boys to the United States to live with an uncle, but kept their daughters with them because they did not want to send them to a foreign country. His grandfather spent 21 days on an old ship, sleeping in a bunk bed for the voyage to Ellis Island, where he spent two weeks going through the process to be admitted to the United States. This involved completing health tests, including a quarantine after the trip, proof of where he was going to be living with his uncle in Boston, and began the path to citizenship. He came to our country not speaking any English, with a trunk of clothes and having the equivalent of $10 in his pocket. Mr. Vassil lived and worked in Boston before moving to Cleveland to live and work for another uncle. And then he moved to Indianapolis in his mid-twenties and worked in a real silk manufacturing facility where he met his grandmother. In his thirties, he bought a bar and a pool hall in a downtown Indianapolis location that he operated for 40 years before selling it, which he worked at seven days a week. Louis Vassil's journey from a 17-year-old immigrant from Albania to becoming a small business owner in the United States taught his grandson Larry a lot about hard work, as did all those Sundays that he spent helping him clean the bar and the pool hall the only day of the week that they were closed. Larry, this is such an amazing and quintessential American story. Tell us how your family's journey to America brought you to lead Genovis. Well, for me, you know, one of the really interesting things growing up, my grandfather really instilled in me in an early age the importance of doing something you're passionate about and something that's worthwhile in life. And for me, um, his story and his hard work and success really led me to want to lead some, build something and lead something that really contributed positively. One of the things I've always enjoyed about economic development and site selection is the impact it has on people's lives. When you can see money being invested in the community, people getting jobs, people, you know, earning a salary or an hourly wage, what that impact really means uh, on that family specifically, but that business and the community they're in. So for me, that's what really drove me to want to lead, you know, build and lead an organization like this that contributed positively to what was going on um, in a geographic area, you know, where we work on projects for clients. Well, that's great, Larry. Prosperity is a wonderful thing to see and invest in. So tell us more about Genovus and what services you and your team provide. We're, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have just a great team 
Um, we have 12 people on our team, and, and we're primarily focused on two things for our clients. So we are a professional site selection firm. So what that really means is we're helping companies figure out the best location to expand or open new facilities in. And there's two important components of that. One is location, what we call location modeling, where we're taking a set of assumptions from our client and we are looking at things like talent, infrastructure, tax rates, lots of different things that impact both operating and project costs to determine what areas make the most sense and where they can be successful, essentially. So we do that work on behalf of our clients. And then the second part of what we do is help our clients then understand the opportunities to create public-private partnerships where they can co-invest their dollars with public resources in, a, in an appropriate and responsible way to support a project. And we, we do work for both industrial and office users, and we serve clients primarily in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and most of the Caribbean basin uh, in support of those projects. But we're, again, I'm really blessed to have a great team, 12 people, including myself. Uh, we have over 100 years of combined economic development and site selection experience amongst our team. And we've been fortunate to support about 350 clients um, in what now is over 400 projects in our 18 plus years of being in business. That's great. So Larry, there are a number of site selection consultants out there. Tell us what makes you different. I, I think, you know, there's certainly in our industry, there's a lot of, of good firms and a lot of good people that are out there. And I, I think one of the things that we really focus on as, for, as a firm is how we deliver our results to clients. I mean, I'm certainly not going to suggest that our firm is better than other firms in terms of wanting to serve clients at the highest quality level. Um, but I, I think one of the things that is maybe a little different uh, about our firm, at least compared to most firms, is you know we, we have said from the beginning when I founded our company that we wanted to treat our clients like family. And you know we all know with our own individual families, sometimes that kind of open and honest feedback through a process isn't always comfortable, but it's the right thing to do. So treating our clients like family, always providing honest and open feedback. And then I think the other part of it is just really focus at the end of the day. We like to say internally amongst our team, we're ruthlessly loyal to our client. You know, our, our number one job is to make sure we get our client to the right place with a decision. Doesn't mean they always take our recommendation. Sometimes they might pick, you know, pick the backup site or pick another site that's amongst the three or four finalists. And that's okay. That's their prerogative. They're, they're the client. So I would say that piece. And then the other one is we are always with our clients. Unfortunately, most of our clients are very supportive of this. We talk about when you create these public-private partnerships that they need to be built to last for a long period of time, meaning long after the project uh, has commenced and a building has been built or a company has moved into an existing building, that relationship between our client and the governmental entities is going to have to last and be successful for the long term. So one of the things we talk about is when these public-private partnerships are created, 
to do it in a way where everyone feels like there's a positive outcome. The community, the state, our client all feel like it's a po- it's a positive outcome because in, in this business, so to speak, site selection and economic development, you really can't have winners and losers uh, when you work on a specific transaction. Everyone has to feel like there are positive benefits that they're going to receive as a result of that transaction and how things get implemented over time. Fantastic. Tell us, Larry, how has site selection changed in the past years prior to COVID? Let's say 10 years. Sure. So I I think certainly without a doubt um, how all of us in our both personal and professional lives have seen technology impact what we do every day. Uh, I, I think that's been one of the most pronounced changes is, is how has technology impacted the site selection industry. So part of that means, as an example, there's a lot more data available and tools to analyze that data today than certainly what we saw uh, in place 10 years ago. I think the other, other part of that is, is how much data real-time data is available to us. So just just by way of a quick example, when you look at talent, uh, there's an amazing amount of information that is available in real-time that gives us a snapshot of what something looks like, the dynamics of a labor market in, in specific areas. You know, where in the past, you know, even five, but certainly 10 years ago, you know, we're re- relying on a lot of government governmental data around workforce and talent issues that typically would be trailing data that might be six to 12 months old. And, you know, and as a good example, I mean, the data that's available to us as we work with Chimura, that data is incredibly value. And again, just how recent the data is that we can utilize to support our clients is, is amazing. So, the, so I would say that technology, the tools, and then as a result of that, just the information available that certainly is is a big shift. And then I think the other big one that we have noted as a firm is just the timeline for projects. You know, you go back 10 years ago and let's say we're working on a really large manufacturing project. You know, 12 to 24 month time frame from start to finish wasn't unusual for a project that would go to a greenfield site as a build-a-suit for a large manufacturing or, for that matter, a large distribution logistics project. Well, that timeline, and and applies to office as well, has really been compressed. I mean, for us now, a long project lasts 9 to 12 months from start to finish, um, from when we have those initial set of assumptions to the point where our client makes a decision where to move forward, with investing capital and, and, and bringing on talent into their organization. Most projects today, I think the expectation with our expectation with our clients is six to nine months from start to finish. And we'll have some projects that'll look more like, you know, four months in particular, if somebody's on a compressed timeline to move forward. So in, su- in summary, we're seeing a lot of clients, maybe they're taking more time to think through and, and decide that, yes, we need to do something. We need to build a new facility. We need to relocate an existing operation. But when they make that decision that they're going to move forward and do something, they want it to happen much faster than certainly what we saw 10 years ago. Okay, Larry, let's let's really get into this. When we get past this upending pandemic, 
Will there be a shift in where corporate headquarters and manufacturers want to be? I don't think there's any doubt that there will be some permanent shifts and realignment that remain in place. Now, I think in fairness, you know, we are going to see some things, you know, in this case with COVID, when a vaccine is widely available, we're going to see some things that will go back to look more like it it was pre-COVID. But there will be some permanent shifts in realignment with, without a doubt. And, and so let me point to a couple things I think that are important there. So um, one, certainly as it relates to locations, we are seeing a number of our clients really being thoughtful about how many locations do they have that can help them mitigate risk. And before, it was really a lot about mitigating risk around natural disasters and being able to tap into the appropriate labor pools and having, you know, flexibility there. Well, now we've thrown in this whole pandemic world we've been living in. And and I think we're all probably smart enough to recognize that there'll be future pandemics. You know, it won't necessarily be COVID. It'll be something else, but this is probably um, not, you know, not the last one we're going to see here over the next several years. So having said that, um, there, there has been some very honest and direct conversations around, especially very large urban, densely populated areas, specifically large kind of downtown densely populated areas. And one, how smart is it, even though the talent in those places for certain types of projects may be very good? How smart is it to have very large operations in those locations? So that that's one component of it. And then secondly, kind of which corresponds closely with that is those areas, too, that rely very heavily on some form of public transportation, whether it's subway, light rail, uh, other forms of public transportation. You know, will there be a long-term he- hesitation or reticence with workers to utilize that form of travel, again, especially if you're in a pandemic environment like we're, we're in right now. So having said all that, certainly I think um, that kind of second tier size-wise of metropolitan areas, I think there's going to be some you know, benefits for them. Those you know large metro areas, not the super large ones, but the ones that let's say between one and three million people in their metro area, I think there's, we think there's going to be an opportunity there based on things we're hearing from our clients for more capture of projects and facilities, both office and industrial. But the other thing I would, I would say is even in those very large metro areas, you know, three to 10 million people that you're going to see some of the suburban locations and also some maybe smaller communities in those very large metro areas that are also going to be the beneficiary. It's interesting. I think even before COVID, we were seeing with some of our clients, you know, there's so many different schools of thought that are out there. You know, kind of have the Richard Florida model of the world, and you have a Joel Kotkin model of the world about where are young, well-educated people going to live and work. And I think there was a thought that it would be a heavy concentration for the long term, a, a permanent shift to urban areas. Well, what we're seeing, even again before COVID, that's not the case. Um, that yes, I mean, when they are young, right out of school, especially before they're married, that is a more prominent issue. But when they get married, and in particular when they have kids, you look at the statistics over the last five to seven years, 
there is a shift to suburban areas and, and other communities in these large metro areas. So I think that coupled with COVID and risk mitigation will lead to some permanent realignment as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry, do you, um, do you think the current work at home policies being adopted have an effect on the size of the footprint of these locations? I don't think there's any doubt. And, and we are, it's a great question. We are going through probably with about a dozen of our largest corporate clients right now, analysis looking at that very issue with the question being posed, you know, what percentage of our workforce can work remotely on a permanent basis? Um, you know, when we were all thrown into this earlier in the year back in March, I think there was a lot, certainly understandably, a lot of apprehension and uncertainty around how this would all work. I think, one, people were pleasantly surprised how the technology tools could connect us all together and allow us to continue to get work done, um, you know, at a pretty efficient level in the change. Now, you still lose kind of that emotional connection, face-to-face collaboration, but at, le- at least things could get done. So I think the technology was better than most people expected, and I think people adapted more quickly in many cases than, than what was expected. So having said all of that, I don't think there's any doubt, especially on the office size, uh, office side of things. We're going to see square footages reduced because there is going to be some percentage of the workforce that will remote, work remotely on a permanent basis. I think first, the, you know, the biggest ad- adapter, or I'm sorry, adopter of it will be technology companies that already were, you know, let's say allowing five to 10% of their workforce to work remotely, if not all the time in the majority of the days of the week. Um, I think there'll be high adoption there. But I think what we're seeing already, too, with some of our large corporate headquarters companies that we do work for that are outside of the tech sector, they're also saying that, hey, some of our finance HR uh, customer care or technical support staff, they can do what they need to do from home and we're going to be able to have some shift there. So so just in summary, you know, if you look at an office user, let's say that maybe has, you know, five to six people per thousand square feet of space now, that planning is going to change because they're not going to have some percentage of the workforce maybe working in an office environment at all. But the other big thing is I think we'll see more adoption to uh, people, you know, kind of the term hoteling space where you don't have a dedicated workspace, but if you come into the office two or three days a week, you have, you know, have a desk and a, and a place to work from. Um, but those other days of the week, you're either you know, on the road or or working from home, you know, accounting firms had really started to adopt that. Some law firms had adopted that. We think there'll be more adoption of that going forward. And again, square footages on the office side in particular would see the most impact. I see. Larry, how do you utilize JobsEQ in your planning process? Well, for us as a firm, it has absolutely been an incredible tool for us to use, you know, especially when you think about how much more of our work in site selection today is done uh, at the desktop level. Um, While it doesn't replace everything that you accomplish in the field, it does um, 
you know, so much more is being done at a desktop level. And Jobs EQ provides us with not only so much data, and as I mentioned earlier, in real time, but helps us look at things at a very deep level. In particular, it was a game changer for us in the talent area. It really allowed us to go deeper on the talent side in so many different ways to be able to analyze quality, cost, concentration, and then the things that all layer in with that related to educational attainment and other things that are so critically important when you evaluate a talent market. Uh, You know, we, not surprisingly, when we were looking at adopting a a new tool to help augment what we had built internally from a proprietary standpoint as a firm, but other data sources we were accessing, we we did a really in-depth analysis. We put together a three-person team to really dig in over several months and uh, at the end of the day, Chimura was the clear winner and the, the Jobs EQ product helps us immensely. I mean, there is not a site selection project we work on for a client today where we're not using Jobs EQ as a part of that data analysis process. That's great. Could you tell us what the next big thing is going to be in site selection? I think there's a couple of interesting things that we're going to see there. You know, one of the things that COVID-19 caused all of us to do in the industry is is to figure out how we do things, more things virtually. So now with six months under our belt, roughly, in this uh, kind of post-COVID world we've been living in, the virtual site visit component of what we do for on projects for our clients um, certainly has become not only more important, but it is something that, again, we think about permanent realignments or shifts that will remain in place and, and how you go about that process. So whether you're looking at real estate and, you know, you're relying on Google Earth and drone footage of a site or drone footage of inside of a building, Um, you know, that I think from a next big thing, I think we were thrust into that. And I think there will be a lot more done there um, as we go forward in terms of virtual site visits. I think another really big thing that will come out of, of kind of, again, this post COVID world we're in is really what risk mitigation strategies are are put in place. And by that, I mean, you know, in particular distribution logistics, we would go through these cycles every three to five years where, you know, in one cycle you would see logistics firms say, hey, we're going to have fewer really large distribution centers to manage our network um, of locations and serve our customers. And then, you know, three to five years later, it would shift and it would become more, we're going to have more distribution centers, but squal- smaller square footages. I think what we're going to see now is more geographic dispersion of locations, whether it's industrial or office, again, to mitigate risk. So if, as we've kind of seen with COVID, as you have hot spots develop and they kind of cycle through things, right? So if you think about kind of the West Coast and the Northeast and then, you know, the Southeast had a flare up and then, you know, the Midwest followed, um, really looking at those geographic 
assets and how you disperse them, I think will be more important. You know, again, we've seen that some on the natural disaster risk, you know, how you manage around tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, but this throws another layer that's in there. And then I think the final piece of it is, is, is just how you see companies and communities and regions co-invest in, in quality of place projects. So as we all know, quality places become more and more important. So you attract the talent that you want to have both living and working in your community or your broader region. Well, that quality of place is such a key underpinning for how you're de- you develop the talent in your, in your region and in your community that I think it's going to require kind of in this new world as we move forward and not just falling largely on governmental entities and, and maybe real estate developers that initiate these projects, but companies that where talent has become increasingly important say, hey, we're going to have to have a stake in this and invest in the quality of place projects, You know, whether those are amenity-based projects, recreational, whatever it may be, play more of an active role there. And I think that's kind of a, a new, new big thing to look for over the next three to five years in economic development is, is how companies specifically co-invest in those projects. Mm-hmm. So if you could make um, a suggestion to our listeners that are in economic development for the post-COVID site selection projects, what would that advice be? I think there's a couple things um, that I that I would touch on. You know, first and foremost, and this, you know, this existed pre-COVID, but I think it's even more important, kind of in that post-COVID world, um, is you know, don't try to be all things to all people. You know, you see too many people, and this isn't a criticism; it's human nature. Too many people want to try to attract certain types of projects to their area where they their assets don't align very well. And I'll, I'll use an example of, of life sciences. Life sciences is, you know, a very exciting, attractive cluster that, you know, everyone would love to grab onto because it, you know, it has, um, you know, it's, they are typically very high value products. The jobs pay very highly and they're capital intensive. Uh, all those things are true. But you see a lot of areas that really don't have the assets to line up with some component of that trying to attract them. Or maybe they are better suited for parts of life sciences, but not others. But again, they try to be all things to all people. So I think that holds true and becomes even more important in this post-COVID world. Know your community, know your region, and know what assets you have in place and be very targeted and strategic about how you approach being successful in those in those different respective areas. Um, secondly, um, related closely to that is, you know, especially in the world today with so much information being available to all of us, as we've talked about, know, you know, what you're really good at, but also know, you know, those handful of things that, you know, are challenges for your community or region that you're serving as an economic development professional. I mean, one, whether it's a site selector or the corporate end user, you know, they're going to have a pretty good idea based on data review, conversations they have with peers, you know, that are in that area today, understanding 
what challenges are in place. So hit it head on. You know, don't try to kind of gloss over it. Hit it head on and say, hey, we know we've got these couple of challenges. By the way, here's how we are attacking those uh, to make the improvements we need to to be successful in the long run. And then the final thing I would say in terms of a piece of advice is um, it, it's very easy for people, especially in good times, good economic times, to take economic development professionals for granted. And, you know, I've, I've said this to our team quite a bit over the past few months that, you know, that next wave of first responders, so to speak, and, and now as we're really looking at how we rebuild economies in our communities, regions, and states, are those professional economic development people. And that's not at all to put anybody on par with healthcare workers, firefighters, police officers, because, you know, they are the kind of true first responders that are out there, uh, you know, doing their job every day to help us all live the lives that we want to live. Um, But the professional economic development people that are out there, they're right now going to be the first responders to help rebuild our economies. And I think it is critically important for people to understand that and for economic development professionals, whether it's with their elected officials, whether it's with businesses that provide funding support to them to help uh, explain that role, because between COVID, you know, and the fact that we're, you know, we're in a, a recession um, probably that was going to happen anyway without COVID, but has been more pronounced because of COVID. I think that is really, really important. I mean, I, I can't say enough about economic development professionals and the role they play in normal times, let alone in a situation like this, and, and just how vital they are to the communities and regions that they serve uh, throughout the United States and, and more broadly speaking than that. And one last question, Larry. Um are you observing the intersection between economic development and tourism during COVID at all? We are. And, and I think it's interesting. I, I just had a conversation the other day with uh, a couple of state government officials for a, a state in the U S and, and one of the things we were talking about in, in particular, really there were two aspects of it. We were talking about one is, you know, obviously the impact that's happened to the tourism industry. You know, when you think about, you know, hospitality, restaurants, conventions, all those things have had a dramatic impact on communities. And, and really, it runs the gamut. I mean, you could be a, you know, even a third tier metro area that hosts some conventions, some meetings, and you've had a big impact there. But also, obviously, with people just traveling less and what that's meant and how that's impacted in particular in many places, sales tax collections that you really rely on when you have visitors come into the area. But the other part of it is then how do you see some of those people transition maybe for some jobs in particular, maybe in hospitality that aren't going to come back or come back for a very long time? How do you transition that? But I think the other important intersection that is is there is when you look at how you sort of brand and position your community, region or state, um, it, the lines are becoming much more blurred thematically around how you do that and in particular what that message looks like meaning that there there are certainly crossovers between that branding piece and that can benefit both tourism and then what I would call kind of traditional economic development so again and I see this with you know my nieces and nephew and my three college age kids 
as well. I mean, they're all about saying, hey, we're going to pick where we want to live first, and then we're going to figure out the job piece along with that. In other words, we're not going to do maybe what past generations did and take a job somewhere because of the job itself, but we may look at that community or region and say, this isn't super exciting to us. So um, it's a much different mindset. So it's a long way of saying this, the messaging, the branding, the things that people do is even more important now because it, it's it's not only about attracting economic development, building your existing businesses, attracting new ones, but it's also about attracting people. And the places in our country that are growing more slowly than others, it's even more important that that messaging and branding is on point that can help, again, not only support tourism, but it supports the broader economy by being able to attract people and companies to come to your area. Because if you're in the long term, if you're not growing, you're not going to be successful um, as we move forward in the future. Well, thank you, Larry. I think our time is up. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation on the future of site selection and the economies and communities that they affect. We thank you, Larry. We look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Chamura can be the difference between a right decision and a wrong one. With robust, innovative tools, clear, credible, and customized advice, we harness the world of data. We believe you deserve more than a cookie-cutter experience. Our PhD economists give our clients the confidence to become experts in applied labor market data. Centered around excellence, in service, in data, and in insight, we set our standards high so our clients' decisions are always grounded in integrity. Visit us at chamuraecon.com. Chamura, let us be your research partner.